From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. It's not every day you crack open a copy of The New Yorker magazine and find a long profile of an incredibly impressive, inspiring young Catholic woman. But that was the case in the February 8th issue, where you can find an article headlined, How a Young Activist is Helping Pope Francis Battle Climate Change. That young activist is Molly Burhans, and she's my guest today. Molly is the founder and executive director of Goodlands, an organization created to enable the Catholic Church to use its extensive land holdings for good. She had this insight a few years ago, that effective stewardship of church-owned land could have an enormous positive impact on the environment because the church is one of the largest landholders in the world. It's probably the largest non-governmental landholder in the world. This is an idea I never would have thought of myself, but Molly has made map-making her ministry. She told me about how she got started, where her passion for this work comes from, and what keeps her charging ahead. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Molly Burhans, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Mike. So I invited you on because I had seen uh, this big article, this like, 7,000 word profile of you and your work at Goodlands in the New Yorker. And as someone who likes Catholic stuff and likes the New Yorker, I was like so excited to see that. Uh, so that was a few months ago. And we want to talk about that and how that happened. But for folks who maybe aren't familiar with you, haven't had a chance to read that yet. Um, maybe if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. Um, a bit about myself and my work. Well, I am Catholic. Um, I try to be a good Catholic, but like most Catholics, I'm a work in progress. Um, I love people and the planet and God's creation. And um, so I, I address this through my work as the founder and director of Goodlands. Um, I also was the chief cartographer for the first global maps of the Catholic Church in history, technically, which is very exciting. And um, I have uh, been involved with the Vatican Youth Symposium, various kind of uh, Vatican Art and Technology Council. I'm an Ashoka Fellow, Henry Fellow. And in 2019, um, I was the United Nations Young Champion of the Earth, representing uh, the top climate solution in North America. And I am very human. And uh, yeah, so that's and I'm Jesuit educated, of course. Right. So you got to have Jesuit cred to come on AMDG, at least some uh, Jesuit cred. So you got a lot of Jesuit cred. So that's great. Um, cartographer. So when people like hear that you're a cartographer, like what is often like their first uh, impression of what that means? Like what, what do people think that means and what does it actually mean? That's a great question. So um, when people hear cartographer, I think they often think of like somebody in ancient times with big vellum sheets, you know, drawing maps, which is really not the case uh, anymore. You know, it's I run a, to make a map takes a village, actually, uh, depending on the type of map. So sometimes I run very large teams who make maps with me and I'm a manager in that role. Uh, kind of the chief cartographer, and I review all the data standards and quality that go into that and the aesthetics, or I make individual maps and apps myself sometimes. And um, that role is really the artist and the scientist coming together. Um, so a cartographer is a really, um, I love actually thinking about cosmographers because my background when I was younger was actually scientific illustration. Um, I started when I was 14. I thought I might be a medical illustrator and go that route. So you can't do uh, like anatomy publications without being board certified, which makes sense. But um, I did a lot of different, you know, uh, artificial intelligence to molecular biology to medicine that's non-atomical, more like uh, diagrams, uh, starting at 14. And um, I love the idea of cosmographer, and I just encountered this because Dante Ignazio, who painted the amazing Hall of Maps in the Vatican Museums, and uh, the uh, also the Vatican's Apostolic Palace maps, he was called not the papal cartographer, but cosmographer, because he also helped the observatory chart the stars. So maybe I'm a little bit of both, but uh, more of looking at the minima than the maxima of the stars at this point. <laughs> So if you get like in a normal time, get on an elevator with someone in a hotel and they're making small talk or something and 
like what is your what is Goodlands? Like what is your pitch? What's the elevator story in like a few like a few seconds? Yeah, so Goodlands helps communities make land work for good. Specifically, we started focused on Catholic communities. Um, we combine uh, design uh, workshops, business development, scientific research, and um, technology to really help the community understand exactly what they own for their property, understand what their goals are, and really work them out uh, both financially and mission-oriented as well, and how to combine those with an understanding of the potential of their property to create the landscape of the future through environmental and social impact. Yeah, and that I think is like one thing I might not think about um, until anyway, I, I read that story and have learned about your work that like the church as this network as a community, what well, you guess that it, it could be uh, like the biggest landowner, like the non-governmental landowner in the world. Um, have you seen like that? Do you have like stats on that? Or is that just like kind of a, an intuition? I love that you're asking this because the secular press gets this so difficultly wrong. They think that the Catholic Church is one one right. entity, you know, and we know that, you know, even different dioceses have broken up real estate legally into LLCs, into the little, little like, you know, different corporations. And um, so when I say the Catholic Church, I mean the network of all of us. I don't mean parishioners included in that, though, like not their homes, but I mean... right. Um, yeah, and so the stats, you know, I've seen Iyad Obamogli of Faith for Earth for the United Nations estimates that faith-based organizations, so all of them, uh, own about 8% of the habitable land on Earth, which is more than uh, India and Sudan combined by area, and 5% of commercial forests. The Catholic Church as a, you know, individual entity, all the estimates out there I think are inadequate. <laughs> so I'm just going to put that out there because I have mapped more than anyone and kind of have more data. Um, in general, yes, if you include the network of hospitals, of our, our mission, of religious orders, you know, yes, we are almost definitely the largest non-governmental kind of network of land holdings that has a structure above us in some way. Yeah. So help like me in my imagination, like learn more about kind of what you're doing. So let's use like a case study, you know, of maybe someone you've worked with. So like whether that's a diocese or like a community of priests or sisters, like, so what does that process look like? Like maybe use a, like an example for us. This is a great question. So there are three different scales of our work and um, I'll start with the individual site and then kind of a diocese province and then let you ask questions about the global because that deals with the Vatican and other kind of groups and it's its own bear of a uh, of a really important piece of this. Um, <clears throat> on the site scale, a really good example is I, I did uh, the design and development for a sustainable urban agriculture farm on a vacant lot. Um, this was actually not with a Catholic community. This was with a, an NGO that worked with uh, at-risk youth. And that was an amazing process. So, you know, you're looking at soils, at sunlight, where to put the greenhouse, like all these different variables, where are the utilities, what's the history, what's the, you know, sending in soil samples to see what's, it, where you should put raised beds, how much protection, where you, there's toxins, um, you know. And that scale, the process there looks like getting to know the client, getting to know the site really deeply, you know, your impressions, both aesthetic and analytically, you know, getting to know the context of the site, who are the people around it, the community, their demographics, um, getting to know the ecological context. How does that individual site say relate to connectivity or, um, you know, stormwater management, which I can talk to a little bit more if you want me to detail or, um, you know, green space in the area. Is there no green space? Could this offer the community more than just a farm for at-risk youth to, you know, learn business development? So that that process is like on the site scale goes, uh, you know, community engagement analysis, co-design based on analyses. So we can, you know, so put this here, put this here. What else do you want? And then um, working with landscape architects to approve it and different experts to uh, you know, go through and build it. So that's uh, site scale. Diocese or provincial scale is really about this amazing approach that we've developed for analytics to optimize property use. Um, so on that scale, we digitize or clean the property record. So we get a really nice map that shows every single property um, and the parcel boundaries legally of those properties and those around them. We uh, tie that into financial data, 
you know, assessor's information. We tie it into market information. We tie it into science about uh, measuring, you know, biodiversity on the site. There's amazing kind of algorithms that scientists have developed uh, measuring biomass, carbon drawdown potential uh, for carbon markets, measuring, you know, solar potential. We run tons of different analyses, even like uh, housing potential, you know, where are the, it's not even just, uh, you know, science, it's also legal. Where are the zoning regulations? What is incentivized? And also, you know, um, by looking at it in this kind of triple bottom line way, um, we combine this really rigorous analysis of, okay, here's the potential with the community's vision of, okay, here are our financial realities. Here's what we, we dream of. And here's what we all want to do. So we take that kind of initial analysis and understanding of the community and bring it to a table after weeks of working on this, um, after the first workshop, and we do a design session using a framework called GeoDesign. So everyone, say your Ladata C team and your uh, you know, financial team come together and using maps, they can actually make decisions that are informed holistically. Um, and after that, you know, we kind of set on a final master plan for the property that has an implementation schedule. Um, and it, this is all cloud-based in a platform online. We don't build the software, thank God, because that would be a lot. So we don't have to maintain it. It's all, you know, kind of the gold standard of the industry. Um, a community gets the map, they get the data, they get the final analyses, and they get a way to kind of feedback and adjust their plan. So it's not like a book. You know, it's really a, a live platform that digitally transforms their entire real estate and mission operations with location. So when you're sitting down with, you know, these leaders in a community of sisters or, or priests, are you like blowing their minds? Like, have they experienced anything like this before? This seems like just a lot of parts, a lot of technology, something that in some ways might feel like uh, intimidating to folks who haven't experienced this process before. Yeah, you know, when when I sit down with someone, usually there is a specific goal. So we just got our first actually environmental project request. Before then, we've kind of like just added that on or like been hoping to that it would come you know <clears throat> before this we've worked on school and education suitability analyses uh you know on uh different mission oriented for social and financial impact with communities and record digitization um so it has been a process when we go in we try not to i try not to overwhelm so i try to focus on the individual thing that i'm brought there to even though we know that every single team of a diocese or a religious order will benefit from the underlying data. You know, this is so much, it's not just about making land work for good, it's multiplying the impact of data as well, making data work for good. Yes, their minds are often blown and it is a wonderful process when that happens. It's one of my favorite parts of my work. So, you know, uh, we go in and when I started Goodlands, everyone was like, why do we need a map? Like this, this is ridiculous. So I had to do all this work for free <laughs> at the start. And I had to like, yes, I ate beans and cried a lot. It was, it was beautifully penitential. Um, and I, you know, I, with this kind of process of really building awareness and finally like getting to this point, uh, one of my, f just it's just amazing to watch people have their aha moment with, oh my gosh, understanding the the where of us is just so powerful. And one of my favorite moments was actually with the diocese in the Midwest. The one of the priests at our workshop who was, um, I think he was the the vicar general for the diocese. He um, he was so creative. He's like got to be 80. And Hielsen was like, oh, we can design an algorithm for parish boundaries based on demographics and have it like actually be informed. Like he's just like, you know, going. And then all the teams, the great part, I love running these workshops because all of a sudden, you know, you kind of bring, you go on this journey with people, which I have been on myself, obviously, in learning where all of a sudden you really just like, you see the entire um, world, I think, in its different way. It's not even just their property, you know, it's all of a sudden understanding, you know, it, it, the power and the beauty of understanding our place and our context and space. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of going up this ladder all the way to like universal church Vatican level. So what, what is the work that uh, you did there? You mentioned kind of putting together this first like worldwide Catholic map. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a great story. So when I was 26, <clears throat> actually, I found a good lens when I was 25. So it was 2015. Uh, and I started working with students and really looking for a global map of diocese. 
um, online all over. And I couldn't find anything, even in records, like historically. And so um, I found one map, which was on Wikipedia of provinces, which was not digital. And it was so full of airs, but it was made by uh, this our first hired intern, Sasha Trubesky, who's amazing and has graduated since from uh, University of Chicago. And the other thing that we found was the um, the Atlas Hierarchicus, which was hand-drawn and at the time had its boundaries last updated in 1901. Very problematic. And it wasn't global. So the dioceses were subcontinental as expressed in the book. So it had global kind of um, pieces of the globe. Why that matters versus like a global map is that when you stitch things together, um, it's very, uh, you know, there's different projections of maps. You know, there are standards. And so that was pretty unusable. Atlas Hierarchicus. So, um, so what ended up happening was I was invited to run the Applications Prototype Lab at Esri that had just finished mapping the Administrator 3, so kind of like the county level or diocese level boundaries for the United Nations uh, for World Health Organization during the Ebola crisis. So it was awesome to go in after that. And I, I was 26 and I was given permission to lead the entire lab in any project I wanted. And it was the diocese boundaries. But of course, before I did that, I went to the Vatican because I thought, gosh, like there's no way that no one has done this. The Vatican must have a copy and I don't want to waste resources doing this. So I, I'm 26 and somehow I land all these meetings at the Vatican and I'm so, you know, founding this very, very uh, frugally. And I had spoken, made a graphic prototype of all the different layers of this map, you know, the diocese, the Episcopal conferences and the provinces, which I can clarify after this if you want me to. Um, and I had shown that at a Catholic Relief Services conference and talked about my goals with land in the church um, in Nairobi. And they had given me a scholarship to cover the flight there. And instead of flying all the way back, I took the flight to Rome and I couldn't afford to even stay in a monastery, which which is something about, you know, a devout Catholic who can't afford to stay in a monastery. This is also like part of my mission. I'm like, oh, wow, the land. I'm stuck in a youth hostel full of all these hungover, smoky Euro trippers, like meeting with the Vatican because I cannot even afford this. This is kind of a sign of the issues, you know, but it was amazing. Um, I, I was doing my first kind of pro bono mapping project for a religious order, a global one at the time. And um, I landed you know, meetings with Vatican officials um, and the global mapping, the really start of that, I think, was with the Vatican because um, first I found out they didn't have the map, so we had to make it. Second, I found out, you know, that they gave me permission because it was, for me, you know, global mapping has a lot of implications and I wanted to make sure that, you know, they were okay and they were aware and their, like, security and geopolitics, you know, that we were thinking about that and that, you know, that was tied to their, their knowledge that we weren't just, I wasn't just going to be rogue. And I mean, I could have just done it, you know, but it was really important, I think, to start with the permissions and discussions there. So this project is, what's the status of it? Is it done? Can like, I, can I look it up online? Is it like, what, yeah, where is it? What is it? Yeah, we have actually over 300 data sets, maps and apps available publicly of diocesan boundaries. Um, the version online was last updated in summer 2019 that is publicly available. We have regular updates behind uh, in our back end that are not public. Um, that, um, those 300 maps and apps here, I can send you a link, um, include the first carbon footprint of the Catholic Church, includes biodiversity in every diocese, it includes tons of amazing statistics. Um, so that is part of a data infrastructure, which I can talk about later. Um, that was kind of the beta public launch of it. Um, the other piece of the project is the Vatican piece. So um, what happened was when we made these kind of, it was just amazing. Actually, um, we, you know, combined over two or close to 2000 separate resources, which are all listed um, in kind of the metadata of those uh, those data sets that I mentioned online to make this map from scratch. And I worked with the obviously a team that has done boundaries before, which is a very complex kind of process. Um, because you need to like have them all harmonized. You need to have them, you know, reflect um, uncertainty and certainty uh, well. Uh, like when you go on Google Maps, you'll see country boundaries are chunky. 
you know, dioceses, we've made them intentionally chunky, even though some of the information we found is very high resolution, very, you know, refined, because it all needs to be the same. It all needs to be reflecting, you know, that information. Um, yeah, the Vatican, you know, so when we we made that, I just remember it, it was the first time anyone had seen the global church, you know, and we put in, uh, thanks to David Cheney at Catholic Hierarchy, we put in his data, which is from the Honorario Pontificio, and uh, we could see, you know, the number of Catholics, the Catholics to population, the number of priests in every diocese, the number of priests to Catholics. And all of a sudden, it was like, it was just amazing. And I remember I called a, a priest um, of Vincentian, I know, when we, made, when we first saw that map, like projected in the lab. And um, because I was so sad because of the priests per Catholics, all of a sudden I see how dire the priest shortage is. And, uh, you know, it, it was just such an experience. Yeah, I can't imagine to be able to kind of visualize that. I think you kind of take that for granted. Like, oh, every diocese or every parish knows like what it has and how big it is. But like the fact that there was nothing that kind of brought all that together until just recently, it's pretty wild to, to imagine. Um, so before we started recording, we were talking about how we're at the start of uh, the Ignatian year. Uh, the Jesuits are celebrating the, the 500th anniversary of St. Ignatius uh, being hit with a cannonball, which shatters his leg starts him on a, his conversion experience, uh, which leads to the Jesuits. Um, so one of the questions we're, we're asking people, I know you've been asked to, to think about this uh, by the, the Jesuit headquarters in Rome, is to kind of think about like cannonball moments in our own lives. And just, I'm just curious like how someone gets into this, like discovers this calling to like map this way, to like think about land use this way, especially connected to the church. So if you could share with us just like a little bit of your own like story, your own cannonballs, like how did you get here? Oh gosh, this is a great question. Um, I feel like I've been hit with multiple cannonballs. Maybe I'm really difficult to teach, <laughs> but I think the biggest cannonball hit when I was, uh, when I was 20. Um, so my background, I guess, I was born in Mount Sinai, and apparently I barely cried, and I was, like, super jolly as a baby, and my first expression was really a deep belly laugh. Um, but like most people my age, I'm 31, around the millennial, uh, you know, generation, um, I grew up in this backdrop of 9-11, terrorist attacks, and, you know, the U.S. going to war, and what seemed like increasing racial tensions and religious tensions with Islamophobia, and, you know, uh, Christianity and uh, evangelicalism in the United States, like, and kind of, I, I guess I also had this broken trust as well in academic institutions um, that were supposed to uphold integrity and in research, um, you know, and, and also, you know, these ominous warnings about climate change in the backdrop and the breaking of the Boston News, you know, spotlight and sex abuse scandals. It, it really, painted, I think, my uh, my reality, looking at it as a quite d dark, you know, world. Um, and in that, I found science to be a very, uh, a light, you know, a beautiful kind of piece of, of our existence. Um, I was a dancer. I thought I was going to be a professional ballet dancer. Um, and, you know, the human body was really this amazing um, instrument uh, for me growing up and way to, you know, really discipline and express, um, you know, stories uh, through through dance. And also, um, you know, once I got more into science, um, I mentioned the kind of illustration, it was the beauty, this kind of like molecular masterpiece, that's like an ostinato set to numbers rather than notes and chemical choreography that underlies it is um, just wowed me, but I didn't believe in God. And it was, um, it was really hard for me, actually. I remember looking at Christians in college. I first went to a, a dance program at uh, Mercyhurst, which is run by the Sisters of Mercy. And um, just thinking, gosh, they have it so easy. These people who believe in God, you know, they, you know, everything happens for a reason. And it was both this ping of jealousy, but also of, of um, really dislike. Because I, I went from this very, uh, you know, open public school that was ranked number four in the country that year. Um, it was a magnet school and it was very diverse immigrants, people of different beliefs and backgrounds and, you know, uh, 
and it was you know everyone was really caring i would say about like like there was a very big push for social justice and at the school you know people were not thinking about supply chains they're just going to walmart going to target you know target is so much fun and disney and and it was really hard um i think you know after that the cannonball moment um was really took me from i was never atheist but i was definitely agnostic and after a series of events um at the college you know um I walked in on one of my fellow students mid-suicide attempt. They survived, thank God. Um, I, you know, I myself uh, had a major uh, infection and it catalyzed, uh, you know, actually narcolepsy, <laughs> which I still deal with. So, uh, you know, I my whole life is kind of shifting from this identity of a dancer and I returned to Buffalo. And, um, you know, I started studying biology and philosophy at Canisius and really being involved in the arts community. And I encountered uh, Dorothy Day through uh, this amazing kind of freegan community that has been written up in the New York Times um, around when I was with them, uh, who was fixing up an entire community in one of the many abandoned properties of Buffalo. Um, and the cannonball was really like, um, when I was thinking about aging theory, which is, my dad studied that. He was a molecular biologist. Um, he studied, you know, aging and cancer. And I was thinking about, you know, the organism moving forward through time, <laughs> uh, pretty much. And uh, it's funny because I would say my, my, my cannonball is naked mole rats. <laughs> They're really, talk about finding God in everything. They're kind of ugly creatures. I'm sorry, God. Um, but they also are very interesting because they live very long and have very interesting kind of metabolic processes that support that. And I was thinking about these creatures and all of a sudden, you know, I wondered, why would anyone want to live forever? You know, um, how could I study life sciences if I didn't even know the meaning of life? And I, I dropped out of it's uh, it's the only Jesuit college I dropped out of. So I dropped dropped out. Uh, thankfully, my mom is a professor, so I could go back anytime before th thirty. And um, you know, the meaning of life. I that collision, that cannonball moment. You know, I found love was the only answer that really worked. Like we're made in love, we're made for love, and that love was God and Christ was somehow there in that moment with me um, and allowing me to be uh, with this love and with all of my imperfections, which, you know, in that love you see sin, I think is it's so devastating in some ways um, because it's not like punishment. It's just like, wow, like, like we want to love and Christ is like, you're human and like, I forgive you and it allowed me to to be real, I would say, to be fully myself. Um, and, and that was really, I thought I had lost my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm a Christian. And like, all of a sudden God seems more real than anything. Um, so, you know, I went to a doctor <laughs> and I told him that I was no longer uh, agnostic and I thought that God might exist. And he didn't seem too bothered by this. I was like, wow. Um, so then I was like, next stop is a Jesuit, perhaps, but I didn't know who was loving, right? Who's the right Christian? Am I even a Christian? Where is this from? And that's where the discernment of spirits really comes in. Um, I eventually, you know, uh, did the Ignatian exercises and argued with Jesuits profusely and translated, you know, uh, studied Greek for two years and, you know, worked my way through the Nicene Creed, every single part, had a little mini council of Nicene in my head after trying on many different heretical hats, unfortunately. Um, the homoousia was really the turning point of, um, you know, 100% human and 100% divine. And uh, then the Eucharist was kind of the final, like, holy apostolic and Catholic church being able to profess that and believe it. Um, so I owe a lot to the Jesuits for putting up with me and I lost my argument and I, I became Catholic. So that's my my cannonball was really the aging theory and naked mole rats kind of hitting me over the head. <laughs> so you, you have that experience. You're, luckily, you have the Jesuit spiritual director you mentioned who's there to kind of meet you where you were and accompany you in that journey. So like, what's the move then from that experience, that kind of big existential conversion experience to like, I'm going to 
make maps and work with people on land use within the church? Like, what does that stage of the journey look like? It's so funny because I was actually, um, you know, mapping the human body was the first, you know, just all the different systems and, and, you know, cell types was, and bioontologies were really interesting. Um, my mom is a computer scientist, so I'm, I'm, uh, as much as I tried not to be, I am an absolute product of my parents, um, intellectually and grateful for it now. Um, and that meaning of life being love, I actually, you know, I said I dropped out. I went back <laughs> to school after six months and everything was changed. Before that, I was like a, not a like great student, even though I have like a brain, but um, when I went back to school, I became like almost a straight A student. Um, it was really weird. My handwriting got better. Um, once again, I'm very concerned about all of this, you know, um, I believe in God and also my life is like becoming really amazing. And I committed to living love uh, through volunteering. And it was amazing. I, I, you know, every week I'd spend hours in an old folks home near campus or um, with homeless communities. And um, in addition to kind of the arts community in Buffalo, I knew. And I also co-founded my first company, which is a worker-owned cooperative in Buffalo. So the worker-owned cooperative business model was actually founded by a priest in Spain. So that's really cool. Um, and it's one of those indoor vertical farms. So it's those whole systems kind of like the the fish, we have fish and their excrement, which is nitrogen rich, feeds the plants, which filter the water, which go back into the water tank, you know, simply. Um, and I got really into regenerative agriculture then and introduced to it. So that was like kind of one piece. The other piece was I was hanging out with these awesome nuns um, before I even was confirmed. Um, I was like the most in denial Catholic. I was going to mass like every day sitting in the back and like spending my time with nuns on like vacation breaks uh, doing service. And I was like, but I'm not Catholic <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, and uh, until I was, but, uh, and you know, I saw their property. I would go walking after morning prayer at 6 a.m. And on this beautiful kind of the mother house property. And I just thought, gosh, you know, there's erosion, there's invasive species, and there's so much potential here to multiply every single ministry of theirs, you know, and they have extra property in the city. And I just saw that and I thought, wow, like this, somebody needs to help them with this. And I thought I might be a nun. So this was after I finally, you know, agreed lost my argument with the Jesuits, thank God, and agreed with the entire creed and was totally, totally undeniably Catholic. And um, so I thought I was just going to be like a farmer nun at the start of this. And I went to a school to do that. And I found that I had an absolute kind of pull and talent for this larger algorithmic view as well. So you just kind of found your way into it. Um, and then got started. So like, t with the beginning, as you're starting this organization, like, you said you were, you know, kind of low, low budget, just kind of doing it on your own. Um, how did you like start to get the word out? Like, uh, wh who were some of your earliest uh, believers? Oh my gosh, this is so wild um, because I, I didn't like have a strong network. You know, I ne was never really into networking uh, growing. I thought it was like, you know, deontological ethics maybe too much in me to think it was like using people and I just wanted to meet them there. Um, I have matured and understand now that it is not so um, and you can meet people there uh, authentically. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I never went to an Ivy League school or a really prestigious school. I mean, so I went to this like master's program in a barn that was started by a landscape architect from Harvard who did his PhD on Palo Ferris, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, and it was amazing. Unlike most uh, kind of landscape architecture or, uh, you know, landscape design and planning programs, we were directly with, uh, you know, with horticulturists, with, you know, people doing the mechanical building every day or every week. We were there with, um, you know, people doing surveys, with scientists, with all these different people and directly working with clients from day one. I mean, it was intense. And, um, you know, working with farmers, you know, every we had classes where we went to all these different people and it was it was amazing. And um, I met Jill Conway there. She went to uh, the church that I went to in this tiny town in Massachusetts. And she was the first female president of Smith College and an amazing, amazing woman. Um, she had just received a, a medal from Obama, the presidential uh, 
Medal of Freedom. And um, she introduced me to a woman named Roseanne Haggerty, who had worked with Catholic Charities in New York on housing um, and is a global leader in homelessness. And Roseanne and I stopped by an abbey <laughs> on my way to West Africa, actually. She was driving me to New York City, where I'd catch a, a flight from. I was doing work out there, uh, agriculture and community work in West Africa. And um, yeah, and and when I graduated, I just made a plan for the Hartford Archdiocese, which never went forward. But it was the prototype, and I just sent it to her, and she offered me space to live in um, in her house where she, you know, her extra house, I should say. She's got, a, you know, spends most of her time in New York City. So, and uh, taking care of, you know, family locally where the house was. So she was spending less time there. And I, it didn't have internet and I didn't have a smartphone. So I started it in the library and I don't drive because I'm narcoleptic. So I would walk to the library and I had to find where the library was. I remember just crying after I moved myself and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know where anything is. I don't have any internet. Oh, wow, what am I doing? And Pope Francis was coming to the United States then and the energy was just tremendous. And it was kind of like my network just never got really, really big, but it's always like providential, like just the right people. The first week I launched the website, Landscape Architecture Magazine, who I'd never talked to, reached out to me. That's the equivalent of like, if you pose your hypothesis and like nature going to reach out to you, if you're like graduated from a master's program inside, like it was crazy, you know? And so it just, the energy and momentum behind this was just tremendous. Um, by that, that winter, I was offered an enterprise system comparable to, you know, the one the United Nations uses for technology and, and to run that lab that I mentioned. So, um, and I worked really hard the entire time. So, you know. <laughs> so you, you mentioned, again, so people finding you in this kind of providential way. And, and I, one thing I'm curious about how this happened, we, we can, there's probably time to, to talk about this uh, New Yorker thing. Um, Feb in February, there's like a 7,000 word profile by a David Owen, who's a writer at The New Yorker. It's headlined, How a Young Activist is Helping Pope Francis Battle Climate Change. I really love that piece. I don't know how, what you think about it, but I thought it went deep. It was really interesting. It kept me reading through 7,000 words, which is not always easy to do in a long magazine story. Like, how, how did that happen? What do you think of it? How has it changed your life, if it has? Um, maybe just start from like the beginning of that story, like how that how that came to be. Well, I'm, I'm very, very uh, honored to have called Prosperity Gospel Crap on the record. <laughs> Joel but, uh, Osteen, if you're listening, she's coming at you. Uh, well, you know, I've got some, I've got some people, the communion of saints, I think I've got some, some agreement up there. Um, but uh, it happened because I, I won this United Nations Award, uh, the Young Champion of the Earth, uh, for my, my work uh, with Goodlands. And um, I had given a talk at the 92nd Street Y uh and david owen had you know somebody alerted him and i was just going to be the talk of the town clip but we started talking and he was like oh this is a great story you know there's so much adventure um of this you know especially it's funny because living poor with voluntary poverty which i think is very distinct i have learned so much uh through this process and my budget travel has allowed me to meet so many amazing people and like gain faith in humanity. So it's, but it's also this wild adventure, you know? Um, and yeah, so that, that kind of got started and then the pandemic hit and I was on my way to Rome. Uh, Pope Francis had uh, proved that I do this trial run cartography institute there, which um, I can d discuss more. And I had developed a counter offer after meeting with some people in the fall of uh, 2019 that was more um, suitable, I think to really really help be very useful um, in the long run for the Vatican um, and the Holy See. And so I, uh, I was about to head back and COVID hit. And then I got COVID and nobody knew about like long haulers or anything. And I like, I couldn't eat for like 16 days. It was Jeez. terrible. I lost like 45 pounds. I wasn't, I was sick until August pretty much. And my, my temperature is finally back down under uh, 99.5 almost daily. It used to be 99.7 for the first time this March. So a year later, you know, oh was, and then after COVID, uh, you know, my aunt died and my grandma died and my dad had just passed away. And then my, uh, I was in a major Vespa accident. Um, oh gosh. 
and then, you know, I had major surgery. So this last year was <laughs> convalescent mass, but it was also, um, it was beautiful because I, I was staying with a community in an underused retreat center, even though I have an apartment because um, I thought that we were going to be locked down for like three weeks without leaving. And I am in a basement studio and I thought I will go nuts here and I know where Catholic property is. So how can I reach out? And that community <laughs> ended up, you know, providing spiritual direction. And my dad had actually, his mom had ties there, um, mm. which is amazing. And um, yeah, so that, that I guess is like, um, and the article kept being pushed back because of the pandemic. And then finally I was like recovered <laughs> and the article came out and it was like, oh my gosh, it was, it's just been amazing. I love it. It's such an honor. And I'm a little worried that like, I've done something wrong because people haven't hated me for it. Like all the responses, I haven't received any hate mail for this. I have in my email inbox, an SSPX uh, response. So very, you know, very conservative on set of Anacanist being excited about it next to a drag queen who emailed me and said that they had not been to church in years and were inspired by it. So it's just beautiful. It's such an honor. So it was terrifying like... though. Let me tell you, that was the scariest, <laughs> most intimidating. He, David Owen talked to everyone. He talked to the president of Canisius. He talked to my mom. He talked to my friends. He talked to mentors. Like that piece, I was like, well, here I am. <laughs> yeah, right. No, there's no hiding. So like, have you, it's Goodlands, have you gotten like a lot more inquiries then? Like, have you gotten from people who might not have heard of you like outside of the Catholic world or what has that been like? Yeah, we've gotten a ton of inquiries. And one of the things that we have really realized is that I love uh, James Joyce says, here comes Catholic, here comes everyone. Our model is actually really useful for a lot of people. So right now, um, we've actually put a hold on projects while we're uh, building capacity because we need, you know, more staff internally, mm. really, for the admin to take these on and do them really well. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been um, really focused on that the last, I would say, since the article. Um, and there is a huge amount of interest, both in support to do that, th thankfully, you know, and um, also in community. So I wish that we could do all these projects right now. You know, we have so many amazing requests from both within the church and outside, but we really need to ensure that the capacity is there so that we can deliver them you know, um, beyond the kind of pro bono scrappy startup, you know? Sure. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you about women's leadership in the, the church and if you're willing to share any, any of your experiences you've had. I, this is one thing, you know, the church has been talking about for a long time, but like maybe in a new way now, Pope Francis bringing together this, uh, kind of second group of people talking about the, like diaconate in the church is there a way to ordain women to a certain type of diaconate. Um, how, if, even if we're not ordaining women, what are ways we can empower women's leadership within the church? Um, Jesuits are talking about this as a, a women's commission formed, uh, the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Just curious about like, you're going in, you're meeting with bishops or cardinals, Vatican officials, bishops, priests, what has been your, ex I'm sure you've had different experiences, but like how, when you look at that and reflect on that as a lay woman in the church, like what, what have your experiences been like uh, trying to kind of be involved at these high levels of decision-making? I am blown away actually by how, um, how respectful and responsible people have been. Um, you know, from when I was 26, I mentioned that first meeting where I was like allowed to go into the Apostolic Palace and sit down with the Secretary of State's office and ask these questions I was never never turned down um you know I think part of it was that my work um you know and the unique background I have which I, I haven't gone into completely which really puts me in a kind of amazing position not just to lead that lab originally but to you know um bring forward a lot of this especially with my networks of professionals and um you know I would say mentors I never stop learning you know I'm constantly learning um and it has been just so humbling. Um, you know, the 26-year-old woman in the Vatican, um, you know, meeting with leadership, that would have been unheard of almost, you know, before. And um, it was, you know, like security questions are really important. And the fact that they listened, I think, was a, a kind of signal of my work being uh, important beyond gender or anything. It's just universally, you know, it touches on a lot of things that we all need to think about. Um, with bishops and other groups, it's actually been, um, I don't know, maybe I'm just not that aware, but like it has been really, uh, you know, I have been very respected 
Um, and, you know, the, the hardest part, I think, is funding. You know, all of our funding right now is secular. And, you know, as a Catholic woman who has won, you know, scientifically vetted, like economically vetted, the highest award from the UN, who has, you know, received papal permission to start an institute in Rome, we just don't get any Catholic funding uh, for even development. And it's, um, that's very disheartening. I don't know if that's because I'm a woman or just because they aren't, you know, set up for kind of systems change level work. Um, the other, you know, even as the only Catholic social enterprise ever vetted by Ashoka, like I hate to like say these awards and stuff, but like the reality is like, I can't imagine that if a man had gotten this far, you know, that the Catholic donors wouldn't respond. Um, but they're starting to a bit more, which is which is really hopeful. Um, you know, obviously secular donors are like throwing, want to throw money at us. Uh, and, you know, I'm having to be very cautious about, you know, data use and security with that crew in a different way. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's the Catholic leadership has actually been really amazing. I think um, NGOs too. There's a lot of like weird competitive maybe because of the scarcity and like Catholic environmental programs and stuff. And so I feel like I've been pretty much um, ignored and left out by a lot of the, you know, well, the, except for like maybe, you know, the other really scrappy uh, underfunded like Sineza and St. Cattery, but like the other Catholic environmental programs, I feel like, you know, there's been, or even it's been strange, you know, how, um, how, it seems like the dynamic, I think, is more less about gender and more about funding and scarcity, though, for all of us. Um, and the fact that, like, I cannot do, like, give all my data away for free or, like, do, you know, run a massive project, uh, like, sink, you know, 50 hours into a grant proposal, uh, you know, with no guarantee. Uh, just it, it's been strange. <laughs> yeah, I, w I wonder how much of it has to like for me when I think about it and read about it and learn more about your work. It's like there's nothing like this going on right now in the church. Like I just wonder how much of it is like having people like understand that this thing could happen. Is it maybe like it is that could change be threatening? Is like is kind of opening up and like looking deep and like asking these hard questions. Is that going to uh, unveil some stuff, some truths we'd rather not have to deal with? Um, but yeah, I just think it's fascinating work. And I just curious, I guess, kind of up against the challenges of having a lot of requests and like trying to scale up, like what, like maybe we could end by just any kind of reflection you have on like, what is the vision you have that keeps, keeps you going? Like, what is it that you're working toward that in 10, 20, 50 years, you could say like, this is what, this is what we keep on the horizon, um, as like a vision of what could be like, how, how do you describe that? Um, in, in 50 to 100 years, I'd like to see Catholic conservation be the largest global network the world has ever seen on the scale of Catholic healthcare. Catholic healthcare provides 26% of uh, healthcare facilities they run them. So, um, yeah, so pretty much no big deal, just that. Um, but part of that, it's funny because all these parallel processes that Goodland is pushing forward. So the, the data infrastructure, the security piece with kind of the Vatican, um, you know, the and policy side, the uh, the individual parish side, and then that, how does this actually get done on the ground, really? You know, thinking about that, um, the top down, bottom up, almost like a sandwich, you know, a big Catholic geographic sandwich um, of Laudatusi and um, mission and reality of finance to like pulling that together. Um, so th those three threads, really, I would say the real estate as a kind of uh, a portfolio that's diverse, the policy and oversight to enable that that is done intelligently, that other people can scale Goodland's model and, you know, just do it themselves and um, have that guidance uh, to make sure that they're thinking about security and stuff. Um, and the local scale of how does this manifest? Um, those three threads need to happen for that conservation vision to happen. Um, and it's, it's, I can go in, into depth if you'd like, but really some of it is, you know, business models, it's taxation, it's it's um, it's the reality that we have to climb those three mountains before we get to the big, beautiful one of Catholic parks and maybe I could be a nun park ranger someday. I mean, <laughs> that was kind of an early goal, like, you know, like nun farmer park ranger and then being like, oh, wow, nobody's doing this. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Molly, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and for your incredible work. And uh, we'll keep praying for you. And hopefully you can figure out some way to 
get you like doing some awesome Jesuit stuff. Uh, Cause I know we have all kinds of buildings and things to, that need to be <laughs> looked at oh, and yeah. be thought well, creatively about. Um, so, uh, but I, as you're saying, we'll wait, you know, until you all scaled up and have hired a, a team of several hundred people uh, and have your, <laughs> your apartment in Rome and uh, get all squared away there. Um, but yeah, thank you again so much. It's just really interesting and uh, inspiring and uh, yeah, best of luck with all of it. We'll, we'll be watching and uh, excited to see what happens next. Thanks so much. Yeah. You know, we, we have the power to shape the landscape of our future. Um, and it is so, um, it's really an honor to be in this position. And I would love to work with the Jesuits. I owe the Jesuits for, uh, you know, being able to out argue me and help me become a Catholic. <laughs> and they are just such a, um, you know, I, I think I can say this for myself and many millennials, you know, they, they are, um, what do they say, JVC? They ruin you. Ruin for life, <laughs> JVC right? ruins your life. Yeah, it's it's been um, it was perfectly done and um, has helped me. You know, um, you know their exor- the spiritual discernment, the exercises, everything has just been so um, such a gift from the Jesuits. So, um, yeah, any way to give back to help. We'll take you up on that. We always uh, we always are ready to to bring people into the fold. So, uh, again, thanks again, and uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, rest of your week, and ha- and hopefully get some uh, relaxation time over the summer here. Yes, I hope everyone does. Thanks so much. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>